Danielle Houston, a benefits advisor at Propel Insurance. This is my podcast, The Checkup. Today is a special episode of The Checkup, something I'll call a labor of love. We did decide it is laborious to bring some content like this to listen to, but it's an episode that my guest and I sincerely hope is going to be a help to someone, whether you're an individual who is listening or maybe you represent a company who is looking for a new way to help your employees and engage in something that has even still today, quite a bit of stigma around it, something that feels rather uncomfortable. So we invite you to be uncomfortable with us today. Let's talk about something that needs a lot of light shown on it. And let's do this in honor of World Mental Health Day. That's exactly what we are recording for today, October 10th. That is the day that we recognize and pay special attention to the fact that most of us have in some way been impacted by mental health or behavioral health, whether it's substance abuse or mental illness. My guest today is Rick Abbott from Primera Blue Cross, and we're going to end up talking about the campaign that Rick and his team here at Primera developed in an effort to help our community here in Washington. And it was really just nothing short of what can we do to help humanity, I think was the way you coined it, Rick. It was. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about this. I am strangely, oddly excited, (laughs) right? Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from. Yeah, so I'm Rick Abbott. I'm the Vice President of Product and Market Solutions here at Primera Blue Cross. Been in this role about nine months. Been at Primera since January of 2018, where I started in the National Accounts Group, which will have some relevance as we move along today as to why I thought this particular topic was something that needed to be elevated. Um, Spent roughly the past decade in various startups uh, from Salt Lake City to San Francisco and initially came out of the core of the blue system, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. So in many ways, I came back home and uh, trying to do some good. And as you said, in places where we think we can improve humanity, actually do so. So this topic in particular is one where I think we have a lot of work to do, but I think we're on the right, right path right now. Or at least on the path. Exactly. At least started. Yes. I would say not that long ago, I would have questioned whether we were, (laughs) you know, we collectively, even as a society, let alone in healthcare and related fields. Yeah. Just a year ago, I was not so sure that a campaign like we might talk about later was even possible, let alone the receptivity and a response that I've heard from others, both inside Primera and in the market around what we're doing. So I agree. It's been a path that has been laborious, but it is one that is well worth the effort. Yes, it is, because ultimately there really are lives at stake. There are. Absolutely. So let's talk about mental health. Okay. And I sigh as well, because, you know, (laughs) as we have talked about, this is everyone has their connection point to this. Everyone has a story. Whether or not you're willing to share it is really the question. I think that's the core question. I think... um, Unfortunately, if you have diabetes, it's something you're probably willing to talk about. If you're struggling with cancer, the the world seems to follow you around with support and empathy and compassion. If you say, I'm struggling with addiction, most people back away. Right. And uh, unfortunately, just like many other conditions, addiction is one that can eventually mean life and death. And you should not have to fight that alone, nor admit that it's something you struggle with. 
And I think that in a de- uh, depression, anxiety, etc., all of those things are swept under the rug. There are many employers now that are unwilling to admit that their employees may need the help, despite what they might see in right. the type of data we show them. Because it is an uncomfortable topic, which I do understand, but I think unless we're able to talk about it and destigmatize it, every other solution we have and bring forward will absolutely be for naught. And I think we should be clear. There isn't many people, there aren't many people who are really trying to bring in their mental health struggles into work, whether it's themselves or a family member. So just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's there because the statistics tell us. They do quite a bit. Depression, for instance, is the leading cause of disability in the entire world. Six in 10 people who have a mental health condition do nothing about it. Which is amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And yet I hear stories on a daily basis. Same. Yeah. And to speak to addiction, 9 in 10 in people who need treatment don't go. And if you think about it, just about every barrier in the world exists to actually stop you from going. If you admit you need to go, is my work going to be empathetic and compassionate and allow me to do so? Even if legally they're required to, culturally will they let me? And by the way, can I take five weeks off potentially and not be paid? And by the way, when I get back, I'm getting a very large bill. And the system is set up to send me to out-of-network facilities that will cost even more. Every single barrier in the world is brought forward for something that really, really needs to be dealt with in a humane way. So let's pause in there because there's a lot in that that I think we would be remiss to amble away from. Mm -hmm. When it comes to substance abuse, whether it's alcohol abuse or substance, I mean, go outside if you're in the greater Seattle area, Mm -hmm. Western Washington, really, and Mm -hmm. we can see what the effects of drug addiction are doing in our community, which should make it really hard for us to ignore. But for someone who has watched some family members Mm -hmm. and kids of friends who have struggled with addiction, these are young people. 17, 16 year old kids with heroin addictions. When you get beyond that and you get into maybe the place where you need some help and you want the help, can you get it? Absolutely. So to the first piece, the sad thing, but honest thing about these particular conditions is they essentially don't discriminate. You are absolutely more likely to feel some of them based on your particular sexual identity, your particular gender, your particular race and ethnicity, et cetera. But across the board, it is a problem. And it does not discriminate by age. When I think about when I was a kid, my biggest concern was people finding out my hidden secrets or the things I didn't want them to know. My children and many others now live their life very openly. Unfortunately, it invites comment. And the rest of the world takes a view of who you are and who you should be. I can only imagine what it must be like to go through school. I thought it was hard when I was in high school. I have a lot of concern about when my kids get there and what that will be like. The pressures to live up to everything you believe your friends think you should be. And to do that in an age where you're ill-equipped to do so. And to your point, everywhere we go, whether you live on the east side, you live south of Seattle, you live up here in Mountain Lake Terrace by Primera, we absolutely visually see the impact that mental health has and the impact that addiction has. And again, it is indiscriminate and it is something that unfortunately, even though we see it every day, we turn a blind eye far too often. And I hope we can change that quickly. I hope we can too. And one of the things I shared with you as we were prepping for this a little over two years ago, I invited 
folks to a seminar to talk about opiates. Mm-hmm. And not just because of what we were visually seeing in, in our communities, but because we were seeing it in the data, in yeah. claims experience reports, the numbers of not just the opiates that were being dispensed, but also in drugs that help people through withdrawals. Mm-hmm. These were on the you know, the top 20 list, in some cases, the first and second prescriptions that were being dispensed across an entire population and not correlating counseling or rehab associated with it either. Mm-hmm. And I was so disappointed at how few people showed up, but also the real unwillingness to talk about it. It's a hard topic. It so I, I get it on one hand. On the other hand, the fear to yeah. really think that maybe this is happening to our people. Maybe this is happening in our workplace, not just what we see outside and the ugliness, but right. maybe it's being cleaned up and coming to work too. Absolutely. As I was sharing with you along those lines, there are a couple different things that end up leading to us sort of inviting this discussion inside the Primera Walls. I can tell you a few instances. For instance, there's one employer that we were working with and we said, well, why aren't we, we willing to talk about this openly? And that employer said, well, because our CEO announced on a town hall call that our company does not have behavioral health issues. To me, that was one, just quite yeah. insane to hear actually was said out loud. But two, if you are an employee who's struggling, what are the chances you're actually going to do that? Absolutely zero. Zero. Also, yes, it's just an uncomfortable topic. Unfortunately, like I said earlier, medical conditions are generally accepted as something you cannot control. We as an industry, though, have not yet made it clear to the rest of the world that you can't control for these many times either. This is the same type of chronic condition medically that you might have with another area of your body. Unfortunately, this one's coming from the brain. It's just something that is really awkward. And the idea that, one, we are going to invite it in and purposely address that awkwardness was relatively controversial when we decided to do that here at Primera, not within Primera, but just within the broader market. But then two, to talk openly about the things that make it uncomfortable, that was really, really um, difficult. And I think not just Primera, not just any of the other carriers in this market, not just employers, collectively, I think we owe it to humanity to be able to bring these forward. It just takes a few courageous souls to do so. And I think we've found at least the right group to start, yourself included, to be able to have that discussion. It is something that is not gonna go away. Mm -hmm. And collectively, yes, it is all of our problems. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to make it only economic, we are all paying for it. Yes. If you want to make it about what it's doing to the fabrics of families and workplaces and the strain on other resources, my goodness, there are so many ways Mm -hmm. that this is impacting all of us. And generally, many medical conditions come with an associated behavioral health factor. I talk quite often about a family member of mine who worked in public service, spent most of her life devoted to saving people and making their lives better. And unfortunately, that came with a price. She developed a musculoskeletal issue after her spine gave in during a particular event, required a number of surgeries. And with that, not only was given the pain medication to be able to manage it, but also a lifetime sentence. She was never going back to work and the thing she enjoyed doing the most. One, to be able to have to go through spinal surgeries is just in and of itself an incredibly difficult thing. But then to do it knowing once you get out of that through the other side, 
that you don't know what the rest of your life looks like and the thing you love is not going to be a part of it, that's an incredibly complicated thing to be able to talk about. Now, this was 20 years ago. The fact that 20 years later, that story still is difficult to tell for me. I get why people are a little bit uncomfortable with the topic, but the think we haven't moved forward in a way for 20 years where I or others feel better about talking openly, that's scary and that's really why I'm excited we're talking about it now. Yeah. As am I. And I I shared this with you, too, how my son graduated from a local high school here, and he's been out of school now for seven or eight years. And about his junior year, he was telling me at the time, Mom, everyone's doing heroin. Mm -hmm. Everyone's doing it. I thought this is in his youthful exaggeration. (laughs) How can everyone be doing this? Because... When I was in high school, you mm-hmm. know, we want to flip back. When I was in high school, like the really bad kids, they found cocaine, right? right? Mm-hmm. Mostly everyone smoked weed. Yep. And there were some adventurous that maybe would find some mushrooms, okay? <laughs> but never did heroin pop up on the list. Yep. And this was a party drug for high school kids mm-hmm. seven years ago. Yep. And the longer we've avoided it and not wanted to talk about it, I sometimes drive through my own community and wonder how many classmates of my son are living outside, continuing to do the things they did before. Exactly. There's a lot of sad stories and a lot of kids out there. Somebody loves them. There are. And I think what's even scarier is nowadays it's realistic to wonder whether the parents also have a similar problem. Yes. And there are employers that I've spoken with both here and in uh, other companies that are really excited to see a decrease, for instance, in the drugs, uh, opiate drugs, for instance, on their medication list or Suboxone as a detox, et cetera. And as their costs go down, they're really, really excited, which I get. I wish I could look at them and say the costs are going down because the person is cured. I can't do that, honestly. I hope that's the case. But it's also, yes, it's possible that they've moved on to something that perhaps their benefit has been exhausted and they need to find it another way. If there was a data-driven way I could make them feel better, I would love to. But unfortunately, this stuff is completely hidden. Right. And there's really no way to know. And as I said earlier, it's indiscriminate. So it's realistic to think with the crisis we have on our hands that there are a number of people who have graduated to things you don't buy at your local Rite Aid or Bartels or Fred Meyer. Right, because health insurance companies really have been working to do their part and right. trying to make sure that there's controls in place. Ten yep. years ago, our biggest concern was people jumping through different pharmacies and going to different emergency rooms to drug seek. Well, now I think the medical community and the insurance payers have all become you know, pretty savvy and aware of that. So to your point, the smarter and more responsible everyone else has become, it's actually created this pendulum side effect of where do people go? And help is hard to get. It is. And if you think about it, we're just talking about the addiction component. Let's just talk about simply being depressed or anxious. Mm -hmm. It has probably been at least a few months, if not a few years or a lifetime, that a person could have been knowing that I just feel sad a lot. I'm not comfortable around other people when I'm in a social situation, et cetera. You know what? This probably isn't normal. I'd like to talk to someone about it. That process in and of itself could have taken years. Now, though, 
they're at the point where they actually have to go somewhere. And again, this is where the system fails them. If you need to find a provider, it is very difficult to find a therapist. Access, we're very open, is very limited. If you're a really good psychiatrist, for instance, you can graduate out of insurance and only take cash pay patients at a very high rate. So let's say you do find someone. You go to your carrier website and pull up xxx.com, whatever it might be, and all of a sudden, okay, there's two doctors available. All right, let me take a look. All right, neither of them are taking patients. Wait, I finally did find one. He or she can't take me. Look out, they can see me in five weeks. You know what? It's just not worth it. And by the way, if you're in a crisis moment, the likelihood that you can actually see someone within even a week is probably very, very slow. So again, you've gone through the entire process of admitting you might need care. And where have we ended up? Ultimately failing you because we can't get you successfully placed. And that speaks to a shortage. I think that often we here, we being, we are helping employers and and their employees at a point of engagement. And we hear there is nobody in the network. Mm-hmm. And the challenge isn't that there's anyone in the network. The challenge is that, to your point, they are cash pay, so they mm-hmm. are not going to contract, but there simply aren't enough mental mm-hmm. health providers. It's true. So some of the statistics around that, which I found uh, through the National Institutes of Health and even um, the Health and Human Services, federally mm-hmm. run, there are, I think it was in a population of about 30,000, it's not uncommon to only have one mental health care provider mm-hmm. per 30,000 people. There was another statistic on the NAMI website that 60% of America is in an area that has no access. That's incredible. That's huge. So that means, I mean, if you live in a metropolitan area, you've probably got... You have a chance. Yeah, you've got a better chance. Not a great one, but but a better one. But Mm -hmm. a better one. That means that the 19% of the population who has an anxiety disorder or the 7.2% that has a major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're eliminating some stigma. We're talking about it. That's incredible. And then what comes next? They're left to their own devices. Right. And uh, that's really unfortunate. You know, I'm proud us, alongside many other carriers, are offering things like Talkspace and virtual care options that will allow you, potentially in the moment of need, to get access. But then there are cases, for instance, to your point, pediatric psychiatry. That's just an area where we will probably never have enough for the near term. Yet, to your point, the amount of things in the just the world that can contribute to their anxiousness and depression and concerns, et cetera, are only going to increase. And I don't think it's a problem that even just telehealth, while it makes it better and provides more access points, it's not a problem that even that will be able to solve. But I think a good first step to your point, being able to talk openly and honestly about it, step one, and then we can start to work on the things that are a little bit more, to your earlier point, laborious, to start to tackle around access, et cetera. Yeah. So what's Primera doing about access? Yeah, so we have opened our network. Uh, Many people will say it's long overdue, but at this point, we are proud to have done that. We are adding things like Talkspace. So if you think about generally, a lot of vendors in the startup space will come out and try to sell every single employer on an administrative fee. Primera just made the decision to treat them like a brick and mortar. 
along with a few other capabilities that I'll talk about, to just stand up more network capacity on a virtual basis while we work to solve it locally. I think I'm also very proud, you were one of the first to see, uh, that we've actually entered into the space of offering, for instance, opiate detoxification on a virtual basis. One of the things I was interested to learn is that because it's a prescription-based withdrawal, so long as you are monitored by a really warm wrap from a care team, it's something we might be able to allow people to go through in the privacy of their own home or wherever they may see fit. One of the things that you mentioned that surprised me a little bit when we were initially going through that information that you talk about, if someone is going through an alcohol detox, mm-hmm. they need to be in a medical you need to be somewhere. facility. Mm-hmm. Opiates, on the other hand, right. I think you said you might feel like you're going to die. Yeah, I should quote Dr. Sean West, who was here for some time and now has joined a recent uh, a local care collaborative, used to say, you might feel like you were going to die, but you are going to make it. So long as you, again, I want to be clear on this, so long as you are warmly embraced by a care team with a prescribing physician, an advocate, a nurse, et cetera, uh, we can help you go through that on a virtual basis. And one of the benefits of that is, one, you don't necessarily have to completely leave your life to go and uh, go to a center to have this happen. So if you are scared of stigma, it is at least addressing that. But then, two, your care goes with you. And we're able to use things like asynchronous texting, the ability to reach someone in the point of need uh, from a telehealth perspective and actually have a video call. We're able to use all of those access points as a means to continue to help you go through it. And there are some controls we have around when we dispense the drugs, we wanna make sure people are passing the appropriate lab tests, et cetera, to be able to do so. But we've progressed so far from a virtual perspective that we have all of the components necessary to do that. Come first quarter of next year, we will take our first foray into doing so, particularly in a place like Alaska, where it's not just stigma, but it's being remote and having a very long winter that could potentially make it very difficult to seek care too. So we've shown it to a few employers and a few brokers such as yourself. It's something we're really proud of and hope to have in Q1. But again, to your original point, it's one of those cases where we may not be able to solve it by standing up more brick and mortar facilities, but we may be able to solve it using telehealth in a more strategic way. Which is so incredibly helpful. I hope so. I mean, we talk about stuff like this. It can feel like this little dark cloud kind of comes over to hang over us. But that's not really what we're looking for today. You know, we don't want to just talk about the problems. I mean, there are solutions and there are real solutions that uh, we should all be embracing and jumping in to see what can we do to help. Absolutely. And so long as we can live up the mantra of do no harm. If we can just make a few people's lives a little bit better with making sure that no one else's lives are negatively impacted, we I think we owe it to ourselves to try. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the campaign. Yes. I love this campaign. Thank you. I love the tagline, right? <laughs> Thank you. I mean, the power of we. What's great is it's the collective efforts of a number of employers that we're willing to step up. So as I said, I started on our national account team. Throughout most of last summer as we were doing our semi-annual reviews, As you said with your accounts, there's a lot to sink your teeth into from a behavioral health perspective. There are many places where there are problems, both from whether it be an access perspective, a cost perspective, a quality perspective, et cetera. But when you have the discussion in the room, and this is not just those employers, this is pretty much the universe of employers right now that we work with, it's awkward. I think most people in benefits want to help. They also are afraid of things like, what if I say the wrong thing? What will you think of me? What if I tell my executive team, this is a massive problem? How will that reflect on our company? Will they be willing to speak openly? How will that reflect on me as a leader? 
It was difficult to have a solutions-oriented discussion around a topic that everyone was uncomfortable with. So myself, along with a few other of our leaders, said, you know what? We're just going to invite the discussion inside our walls. So we reached out initially to just a couple of our national accounts and larger employers and said, we just want to host you for a couple hours and talk about stigma. We don't really have a set agenda. We're not 100% sure whether you're willing to show up. But if you'll be here in January, we're willing to have the discussion and we'll see what comes of it. Might be nothing, might be something. We then asked our sales team and account team, go ahead and put out an invite and see if anyone else wants to come. Sure enough, we received a pretty overwhelming response. At that point, it gets to how big of a group can you have to actually have a real discussion and actually produce an outcome. But we wanted to produce an outcome. So we had about, I think, 12 employers in our first round and they came to Primera and we set up some, some guardrails. We acknowledged up front that we were happy everyone was there, but it was going to be an awkward few hours. We made some agreements with each other. We're probably all going to say something that will offend someone, not because of intent, but because of discomfort. And we're all in return going to agree that we're not going to be offended. And when we talk about words and images, et cetera, it's not just going to be the happy ones. We're going to talk about some of the sad ones, the frustrating ones. I want to know really, what is it you think when I say depressed? And we're going to try to glean that among a whole bunch of other pieces of information out. The other thing we did was we brought in someone who does a TED Talk. His name is Bill Burnett. He's local. And he had actually worked at a few employers locally. And he spoke very openly around what it's like to have a behavioral health issue and try to exist in one of these employers without being identified, without being noticed, and uh, also while trying to hide something that you're struggling with day in and day out. So there was no way they could avoid the discussion because we had brought someone in to sort of shine a mirror back to them. The good news is it went extraordinarily well. We had a very lively discussion. People shared things that were uncomfortable. Uh, They didn't have to worry about fear of judgment from others. And what we agreed to was to come back with some sort of campaign that we would give away as a starting point for any employer who wanted to at least start the discussion internally. And as we said, any solution we bring forward is completely useless if your company is unwilling to talk about this very candidly. That campaign became the power of we, which we have now started showing the market. And I'm proud to say on October 10th, we have a few other employers who are doing their own campaigns. We are agnostic as to whether you want to use our brand, which some people prefer. It provides an arm's length distance into the discussion or completely erasing Primera's brand from the actual piece and embracing it as an employer. But it's a starting point. It's meant to be a way to say, look, You do not have to fear judgment as an employee here. We believe in empathy. We believe in compassion. You are more than the sum of the conditions that you have. Your contributions are unique and valued. You belong here. It's meant to emphasize you are not alone, which is how the power of we came to be. We have seen not just pretty large uptake on the actual complimentary campaign, but you've sat in one of the discussions. It opens up many people to talking about their personal experiences whether it be with their family, themselves, their children, et cetera. And it allows people, even in a setting that's meant to be more business-focused, to say, you know what, I'm not alone, my company's not alone, and it's really difficult to talk about this, but I want to. So we learned a bunch of other things, too. We learned that, for instance, having executive champions, to the message I made earlier, is really important. We learned that it's hard to talk to your middle management about this. It was not in their job description to be the first access point for someone admitting they need help. How do you equip them to have that discussion? So there's a number of other things we want to tackle. But I think having some central campaign we could align around that we just gave away for the betterment of the community was something we wanted to do. And I'm pretty pleased to say that process is well underway and has looked very, very good so far. 
Are those some talking points that you think any employer could use, whether or not they're a Primera group? I do. I think just about anyone in the market can take it and package it. As I said, nothing that seems profound when you write it, but is when you live it. Compassion, empathy. As I said earlier, you are more than the sum of your conditions. This is true for anyone, whether you have Primera insurance or not. And I think it is so worth calling out. One of the things that I found while doing research for this Mm -hmm. was yet another statistic about how you are more likely to experience a mental illness than you are to develop heart disease, diabetes, or any kind of cancer. It's amazing, isn't it? Yet we place a lot of fear and prevention and screenings around things like cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And we talk a lot about don't smoke and go exercise and Mm -hmm. watch what you eat and get your annual physicals. We don't talk a lot about is there some prevention Absolutely. that we can be doing? What can we be doing around mental health? The tasks associated with self-care are not something we generally highlight. We highlight right. all the things you should do to avoid the conditions you just mentioned, but we don't highlight the three or four things you can do just to have clear mental health and whole body health. It's just, we're not good at it. Part of it's discomfort and part of it is this is still a relatively new territory for our employers and for the, frankly, the medical community. Right. But when we talk about things like how much of the population is struggling with anxiety and depressive disorders Mm -hmm. and post-traumatic stress and how few people are actually getting treatment, talking about things like self-care can look like a lot of different things. It can. Self-care can look like becoming part of a community, whether that's something at work that's being built that is part of that warm embrace. My God, we spend more time at work than we do anywhere. (laughs) I know, it's true. Oh, yes, it is. So how can we build a loving community in our workplace, right? How can we build more community in our neighborhoods? If you don't know your neighbors, let's start out getting to know someone there. Exactly. Some of this can feel really very elementary. Having a place of faith, that's another element where the more people have a place to belong and be noticed and seen is all part of taking care of this thing. Absolutely. The human experience is built around feeling like you have a purpose, feeling like you belong, and finding ways to have human connection. They are all things that seem easy in theory, but can be very difficult to actually achieve. And very difficult in a time where we have more access than ever. Yep. We are in some ways more connected than we've ever been as a civilization. And I don't think that it's coincidental at all that that kind of connection now we're seeing so much more of these other things that show us we're not connected. Right? I think the stat is we look at our phones 150 times right? a day and then I've we wonder why we're stressed. I've got so many friends there, yep. so many friends, mm-hmm. but I was home on Friday night. I'm one of them too. Right? I got I to gotta stop myself. Sometimes I need a little more thumb, less finger and point at people. I'm right? the first example there. Yeah. I struggle on the weekends to, do, to actually take a moment and take a breath. Yeah, doing those things mm-hmm. that really are meaningful. Someone who... 
And again, I, I'm not going to share names either okay. because I think, you know, to honor someone's journey, we should be yeah. respectful when we share. Someone close to me struggled with anxiety and probably the best thing that happened for her was finding a great counselor who mm-hmm. could help her learn coping skills. Right. Someone who could help her learn how to deal when life throws curveballs because yeah. it does all the time. And she's become very diligent about doing those things to refuel her tank. Yeah. And she is a young person. And I say young, I mean like a teenager. Yeah. And I think if I had learned some of those skills as a teenager of, no, no, like tonight I actually, I need to stay in because yep. I need a book and I need a lot of rest. And yeah. if I'm going to feel refreshed and feel like I'm able to tackle mm-hmm. whatever tomorrow brings, I need to do this tonight. It's a great skill that will actually serve well for the rest of life, to your point. It's, right? But why are we so slow to do that? Because self-care seems selfish. It's who is losing access to me? What am I forgetting to do? I probably could be more productive doing X, Y, or Z. It's not viewed as, to your point, I need the eight hours tonight of sleep, and I'm going to find a way to get it. Oh, yes, I probably could cross off that task that I meant to do today instead of pushing it to tomorrow. Yeah, I shouldn't do that. I'm going to go ahead and fix this. It's just something that we've been taught and trained to feel is selfish when actually the impacts of that generally show up well down the road, not just in your health, but in your life, in your personal relationships, everything else. If I think uh, we have a public website around behavioral health at Primera, and one of the things we actually took out an entire section of the website to say self-care is okay, and you're actually doing everyone else in your life a favor, by taking those 30 minutes to meditate, by taking that trip to take care of yourself with a massage, get your nails done, go running, hit the gym, or frankly, just sit in peace, which frankly, I have five kids. I'd like that at some point too. (laughs) And I know I- It will come someday. Exactly, that's what they keep telling me. But I can tell you when I have 30 minutes in the morning, just of peace and quiet and coffee, I'm a much better parent. Right there with you, Mm -hmm. 30 minutes. Some coffee, a quiet place. Exactly. I have a morning devotion I get into in the morning. It's so good to just start your day off remembering that we're all part of something larger. And we're really not in it alone. Exactly. Not if you just kind of stop and look around. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, I have... I don't know if I can say that I enjoy necessarily (laughs) putting this together. And not not because it's not great content, but because there are parts of this, you know, there's no way to start getting into this without sharing little personal pieces of yourself that, you know, most people, as we've been talking about, most people at work would have no idea, right? 100% true. So... I appreciate the vulnerability that you have brought to this today. When I think about what are the best things that could take away or come away from this episode is that someone, even just one, listens and decides they're going to tap into the campaign materials. That's what I'm hoping. Going to reach out to somebody on Talkspace because that's amazing. Help is available in a lot of new ways that if we're brave enough to just take the first step, there's going to be somebody that can meet us totally on the other agree. side. My hope is the same. If we can reach at least one, we've done something better for the world. So Agreed. 
And on that note, we encourage everyone listening today, you can connect on that Primera website for the Behavioral Health Campaign today. Mm -hmm. We will link to that and make that address available. There are so many resources that we can share to help you bring more awareness in your workplace and to open up some conversation about what community looks like in your workplace. And with that, thank you for listening. You can follow us on iTunes. You can check out the checkup on YouTube. And as always, thanks for checking in.